faithful. Now, within that, here's the deal. Um, I am someone who likes to work as far out as you will give me. So as it pertains to putting together teachings, if you told me today, hey, I'd really love to have you come and speak at my work or school a year and a half from now, and I'll say, what, what are we talking about? I want to start right now sinking into it. So within that, what that was is earlier this week, it was Wednesday, feeling what we're going to be in and who we are as a people, I said to Sarah, I called Sarah and I'm like, what do you think about taking next week's teaching and, and doing it this week and take this week's and we'll put it to next week? And I walked her through that and she goes, I think that sounds like a lovely idea. I go, great, we're going to do that. So this morning, I'm going to do next week. And next week, we'll do this morning. Sound good? And you're all going, whatever. We don't even know what it is. Why I say that and why it matters, because this morning, this teaching we're going to stink into, I feel it is who we are as a church, who we desire to be, who we are called to be as a church. And so I want us to sink into it. So I want to take a moment and pray, and then we're going to uh, giddy up. Are you with me? Good. Uh, Gracious God, I bless you for the gift of this morning, the gift to be able to gather together as your body, the church. I bless you, God, for the way you breathe life into us. You have awakened us, and you have brought us here together. And so, God, as the psalmist said, may the posture, the meditation of my heart, the words of my mouth, bring honor and glory to you and you alone. That is our hope and our desire, God. As you are speaking, may we have ears to hear. May we have hearts to understand who you are calling us to be. And may we respond with our very lives. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. Now then, uh, what I thought I would do to get us started is to play a bit of a game. I'll call it a game. You know, most of you know that I love words. I love words. um, So, but due to overuse, misuse, or sometimes just blatant changing, did you know that, that words, sometimes their original meaning gets changed? Over time, uh, the original meaning of words gets shifted. We don't always know how, but a lot of times it's overuse, misuse. And so I want to look at some words I find fun. I don't know about you. Do you just read uh, the dictionary? It's fun. It's fun. I know. I'm a nerd. It's a good time. So here's the thing. First word, the first word is flagrant. The first word is flagrant. Here is the original meaning of the word. I think we have that flagrant. Original meaning fiery, hot, burning. The Latin means to burn. That's where it came from. This is the original meaning. And you all are going, it is? Because we in the sports world have a thing called the flagrant foul, correct? And that is because that actually is touching on the more modern meaning, which means conspicuously offensive. It's switched somehow, for some way, it got moved in there, it morphed a little bit. Now, 
Next word, absurdity. Absurdity. Absurd. It's actually originally a music term. It means when something is inharmonious or untuneful. It's, it's a music term. That is what it is. Now, here's the thing. When you and I think of absurdity, we think of the modern definition, which is this. I think we have it in there. Um, yes? No, we don't. Okay, I'll read it. Something that is ridiculous, unreasonable, or incongru incongruent with reality. That's absurdity. Now, you can see the bit of morphing because if I began to sing, you would say that's incongruent with reality. <laughs> that is ridiculous and unreasonable. So you can see where the shift came in there, but it was originally a music term. Uh, next word is hazard. Hazard. Up through the 19th century, this word referred to a game of chance like craps played with two dice. That's what hazard meant. It comes from the French word hansard, which means the dice or one of the dice. Then in the mid-20th century, we flipped it to mean a source of danger. But you can see the move in there. If it's a game of chance, then you see something and it's hazardous, that's dangerous, you're taking a chance if you were to go around it, near it, there, right? So you can see the subtle shift, but we have changed the meaning from what it originally was. Uh, next one, freelance. We think of freelance and we would think someone who is not a regular employee of a company, but one who works remotely via the internet, right? Freelance writer. Here's the thing, original meaning of freelance is a mercenary soldier. Someone who could be hired to fight for one side or another in battle. So a freelancer, this is how I see it, has moved from slaying people with a sword to a writer who slays people with his words. <laughs> I mean, that's what I think, anyways. It's a good thing. But how, what? Do you see how such, that's a pretty dramatic jump in meaning. Now, uh, one more bonus one is what I'll say here. Rule of thumb. If I say to you rule of thumb, you probably think, what's well, a standard? What's the rule of thumb from the, what's the standard way of doing things? That's how we think of it. But originally there are two choices. This is great. Scholars debate on which one was the original meaning because the definition of a scholar is to debate. We just have to debate. We can't land on something. So there's one rule of thumb meant for um, beer brewers. It was what they did to measure whether the temperature of the beer was proper. They would put their thumb in it. So the rule of thumb is, is the temperature up to code here, if you will? Or, get this, until the 20th century, it meant the size of a switch cannot be bigger than your thumb to uh, beat legally, legally beat your wife. If the switch you use to beat your wife is bigger than the size of your thumb, then it's illegal. How dysfunctional is that? That was the original meaning. So please, don't, don't, switch? No, thank you. Uh, and 
I don't really want anyone sticking their thumb in my beer either, um, <laughs> for that matter. But can you see how fascinating this is? I think it's so interesting when you peer into these changes. You can see that it was actually more a bit of a morphing over time, a drifting of meaning. And that's what I find fascinating as it pertains to words is their meaning. What are we doing with these words and what are these words doing in us? Because for me, words are not about flattery or acting highfalutin. For me, words paint pictures or offer rhythms to help us move into meaning. Are you with me? So with that, let me play Captain Obvious and point out how the church has become so familiar with particular Bible words that we have missed that some words have changed in their meaning. And we haven't maybe paid attention to that or caught that. For example, the word disciple. The, the original meaning of the word disciple, which comes from the Hebrew word talmid. Go ahead and say talmid. Tell me, that means disciple. Now, what the original simple meaning is a student of a teacher. A student of a teacher. That's the basic. But here's the thing, and this is a big but. But it's not just an intellectual learner, but rather a practitioner of an embodied way of life. One who is diligently working to be with and become like their master, their rabbi, or their teacher. Are you with me? This is so important. This is how the ancient Hebrew people understood what it means to be a disciple. Which takes us to the next important point. Talmud, or disciple, is not a verb, it's a noun. It's a noun, which highlights an example of how we have lost the meaning of the word today. Why? Because nowhere, nowhere in the New Testament is the word disciple used as a verb. It's always a noun. Yet, watch this, common questions put forth by the modern church that flow out of a verb understanding of a disciple go like this. Who is discipling you? Or who are you discipling? That's a verb understanding. Watch. If we were to swap that then with the other synonyms used by the church for disciple, we get this. Think of this. Christian. Who are you Christianing? That makes sense, does it? Because Christian is not something you do. It is someone you are or are not. A believer. Who are you believering? The actual Hebrew and Greek words for believe mean to trust. That's their meaning. So you either trust Jesus or you do not. Then follower. Do we go, so who are you followering? Doesn't make sense. Because again, you either follow Jesus or you do not. 
Are you with me? Because disciple is a noun, you can't disciple any, somebody any more than you can Christian them or believer them or follower them. If a disciple is something that is done to you, verb, then that puts the onus of responsibility for your spiritual formation on someone else, like the pastor or the church. Are you with me? Can you see the uh uh-oh there then? But if a disciple is a noun, and it is, then it's someone you are or are not. So no one can disciple you but Christ. Now others can help and assist and teach and help move in this direction, but it is Christ that you are being apprenticed to, discipled to. Are you with me? No, this is not just semantics. It's about meaning, direction, and purpose. We get to choose whether we will be followers of Jesus. Will Jesus be our teacher, our rabbi, and our Lord, if you use Bible language then? Which takes us to the word Christian, which is used, get ready, three times in the New Testament. Three times the word Christian is used. The word disciple is used 269 times in the New Testament. Ready? Three times for Christian, 269 times for disciple. Of course, because the New Testament was written by disciples of Jesus, for disciples of Jesus. The original meaning of Christian is little Christ. That's what that means in in the Greek. It was first used as a derogatory word to describe those who followed the way of Jesus. And it stuck because the followers of Jesus saw it as being imitators of Jesus. And they go, we'll take it. Great. Yes, we are imitators of Jesus the Christ. It's something to be. But if we are honest, the word Christian no longer conveys that meaning to most people, especially outside of the church, correct? And again, if we're honest, Christian more often means someone who intellectually ascribes to ideas about God and who occasionally attends some church services. Now, Doctrines are not bad. Do not hear that from me. But we live in the aftermath of a society that has simply asked, who agrees with certain statements and would you like to raise your hand and become a Christian? We're living in the aftermath of a society that has been given that question a lot. Which is much different than what Jesus said, which is this in Matthew 16, 24, the voice translation, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself the things you think you want. You must pick up your cross and follow 
me. Well, that's challenging and very uncomfortable. The Hebrew roots of this statement are, if you want to be my Talmudim, my disciples or students, then follow me. Pretty clear ask, though, is it not? All of this helps us lean into the question, why do we live divided or compartmentalized lives? Work life, home life, friend life, social life, church life. Why do we divide these up? I would argue it's because disciple is treated as a verb, something done to you by someone else, or, you know, it's a church thing over there with those people. Rather than being a noun that is rooted in whose we are, which directs how we are in the world. Are you with me? Hoo-wee. Now, this takes us to an ancient practice of the Hebrew people, which has sadly, this is what gets me, this is an ancient practice of the Hebrew people which has been left behind by modern um, Christians. Whoops. They would recite this morning, evening, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 combined with Leviticus 19, 18. Hear, O Israel... The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might and love your neighbor as yourself. This is known as the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear. But get this, it not only means hear, it means obey. So we would say, hey, listen to me, and someone says, yeah, I listened, and then you go, did you do what I told you? Go pick up your room. And then 10 minutes later, you're like, why are you not picking up your room? Did you hear? Hear would mean you, you, you listened, but you didn't hear because you're not following through. So this is what this is. So they, the Hebrew people, ancient Hebrew people, at least twice a day in the morning when they wake, to set their lives for the day, they would recite this. Then at the end of the day, they would essentially be reflecting, did I embody this and live this out today? And they would recite it again before bed. Why? Because, as we keep going in Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9, then this. Why? Because these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. To which the student asks her rabbi, Rabbi, why would we place these on our hearts and not in our hearts. And the rabbi responds because when the inevitable breaking of your heart happens, the words will fall in where they need to be, when they need to be. And then 
they, Orthodox Jewish people, took this literally as a reminder of all the encompassing nature of the command. So next slide. What you will see with Orthodox Jewish people is they put phylactery, this scripture box, on their foreheads and then one on their arms and they would bind them and they do bind them on there. In the box typically is a small scroll that has the Shema on it. They keep it on them. Then, if you go to Israel today, no matter if you're at any hotel, every hotel we were in, every single room had this. Next slide. This is a mezuzah, which is this little, again, could be wooden, metal. It's this thing on the door frames of your room, your house. Inside of the mezuzah is the Shema, a little scroll, so that when you leave, you, you touch that. And it's the, may I embody this as I go out. When you get home at night, you touch that. Did I live this out as I was away? So that every aspect of our lives is baked in loving God and loving our neighbor. Are you with me? Yes. Now, the point was and is to live an undivided life. The point was to carry the divine who is love into every facet of our lives. Because it is who we are not a label that we receive. If we will intellectually agree to a statement and then raise our hand or sign a document, no, 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 it's who we are. Now, the Apostle Paul would clearly write this to the churches in the city of Corinth, all these house churches. He wrote this to them. Follow my example just like I follow Christ's. How clear is that? Follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, be apprentice to me as I am apprentice to Christ. Walk with me as I walk with Christ that you would see and experience Christ. After Paul gets arrested and then he's placed before the Roman governor, Felix, he responds to the accusations of him teaching this and inviting all people. Uh-oh, they get upset. You mean Gentile people? Paul, you've gone too far. They accuse him of that, of, of letting everyone hear, of inviting everyone to the party. So then... They accuse him. He's brought before Felix, and Felix says, what do you say to this? And Paul says this in Acts 24, 14. I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. Really clear. Maybe, could I propose it's time we return to the roots of following the way of Jesus. For a lot of reasons, we seem to have lost something by pushing intellectual beliefs and clinging to Christian as a label, but it's not a label we wear, it's a life that we live. 
Are you with me? Now, I was recently asked um, what one thing or theme sticks out to you about the book of Acts in conversation. What one thing sticks out um, to you about the book of Acts? Now, the book of Acts is more formally known as the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of those first followers of Jesus after Jesus has been crucified, resurrected, and ascended. Now, I have two answers because I'm a troublemaker. They said, what's your one thing? I have two. There was the answer I gave those asking the question. There's the answer I gave. We'll talk about that answer next week. Sound good? But the answer, the other answer I, I, I would give is that what we tend to call the first Christians, including Paul, were actually known as followers of the way as the way of Jesus. What you find in the book of Acts is they keep talking about being followers of the way. And they call themselves, we are followers of the way, the way of Jesus. And I think it's beyond time we return to these roots. Because Barna Research Group did a three-year nationwide study from the end of 2019 through January of 2023 the COVID years. In this time, they did this nationwide research and they found that 63% of Americans claim the Christian faith. In the research, 63% of Americans claim the Christian faith, faith, which of course raises the question, yeah, I know, but what does that mean, right? What does that mean? The Barna Group says the criteria is based on those who have confessed their sins accepted Jesus as Savior, and believed they will go to heaven when they die. 63% of Americans say we claim the Christian faith. But when these same people were presented with questions of what it means to live from a biblical worldview, which involves behaviors based on the teachings of Jesus and not just intellectual beliefs, they found that only 4% follow Jesus. Uh-oh. Barna's terminology for follow Jesus is integrated disciples. The undivided self. The undivided student of Jesus. Within the research, they determined that 82% of Americans hold what they called a world citizen's worldview, which embraces a few biblical principles, but generally believes and behaves in ways that are distinct from biblical teaching. Of those adults, 63% that say we're followers of Jesus, and then they whittle that down to 4% that follow Jesus, those under the age of 30, only 1% hold to a biblical worldview? What are we handing our young people is the question. This is why here as a church we try and be program light and experience and shared mealed heavy. Let's be together and let's immerse ourselves in what it means to walk in the way of Jesus. And I am not unaware that I tend to teach for 45 plus minutes. 
because we dive into a lot of context. And yes, I endlessly talk about the Hebrew word yeda, which is an experiential knowing. Because obligation to religious ritual and agreed upon statements about an esoteric deity will fizzle and fade away. Jesus said, follow me, which requires an all-of-life commitment. Are you with me? So I would say there is plenty of cost in choosing to follow Jesus, and there is plenty of cost, and I would argue more cost, in not choosing to follow Jesus. We live in a time where convenience, comfort, and consumption rule the day. So to have a rule of life that centers on serving, giving, and loving others because one loves God and is following Jesus will likely not draw the masses. But I trust that it will lead to an undivided self and a bunch of a community of undivided selves I believe and trust can transform the world in which we live in. My hope and the heart of this series that we are in is to know the divine. Again, knowing in the biblical narrative is much different than the typical modern American understanding of knowing. So some text to get at us. Jesus, speaking to his Talmudim, his disciples, says this in the Gospel of John. Now this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus speaking to his Helmedim. Then Paul, writing to the churches in the city of Philippi, says this in Philippians 3, 10 to 11. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, that word know, in the Greek and the Hebrew, in the Greek is this, next slide, the Greek is gnosko, the Hebrew is yeda, and it's experiential knowing, and it's a euphemism for sex. Awkward. Because what Paul and Jesus are getting at is it an intimate knowing. It's when I say to you, tell me about your spouse, and you don't go, well, they're five foot four, and they have dark hair, and they grew up in Hudsonville. And you go, I don't want to know about them. I want to know how you know them. Oh, so you want to know she gets this awkward laugh when she's uncomfortable. And I know when she's really upset because it's just a look in her eyes that freezes me. Oh, okay, you know her. You know, you yada them. Are you with me? So Jesus says, that is what I want for you is to know the one true God in Jesus the Christ. Paul says, I want to know God in such a way that's what we're getting at. In other words, Paul is getting at participating in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, which is to live as Jesus lived, which includes dying to the selfish ego 
so one can be resurrected in the wholeness and expansiveness of the divine with the divine forever. Are you with me? Okay. So this knowing and participation that Jesus and Paul speak of is about salvation. And, I love this quote. Next slide. Salvation for Jesus, salvation is less about getting you into heaven and more about getting heaven into you. This isn't about you going somewhere else. It's about the kingdom of God walking around within you as you walk around within it. Are you with me? So this is less a transaction as in you say a prayer so Jesus can send you somewhere else and more of a transformation into living the way of Jesus right here, right now. Walking with Jesus, imitating Jesus, and becoming more and more like Jesus, and just as Jesus is one with God, we too awaken to union with the divine, the undivided self. So to lean into this a bit further, generally speaking, there are two recurring groups of people in the four biographies, the four gospels of Jesus. There are the disciples, Talmudim, disciples, and then there are those, the disciples who are apprenticed to Jesus, and then there's the crowd. When you read in the gospels, the crowd, who seem to be fans of Jesus from a distance. An example from John's gospel, John 6, 2 and 3, says this, a large crowd kept following Jesus because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and sat down with his disciples. Yeah, you're all following me, but I'm in the midst of teaching. We're in the midst of leading somewhere, a way, two groups. This eventually leads to a confrontation with the crowd They will keep asking Jesus for party tricks, do more party tricks, and give us more bread, to which Jesus finally says to them in verse 35 of 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever trusts in me will never be thirsty. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the crowd walked away. Whoa. That's too much. They really enjoyed transactional Jesus. But being called to apprentice to the life of Jesus, too much. I worry there has been a chasm in the Western American church with evangelism on one side. Next slide. Think of evangelism on one side and to be a disciple on the other. Evangelism asks people to say a prayer to accept Jesus so people can go somewhere else after death. And being a disciple invites people to follow Jesus in experiencing the eternal in the now. The created chasm has become a grave for meaning and purpose. Why did we do that? That's not the way it is in the scriptures. When Jesus is resurrected and he has Peter before him and he says, Peter, feed my sheep. If that meant 
just disciples, if you will, right? He should have turned around at that fire and just said, hey, you guys, you few, listen up. Instead, Peter gets up and he starts telling everyone to follow in the way of Jesus. And then we quickly read in the book of Acts about 3,000 people say, yes, we will follow. Did Peter disobey or did he understand there's not this chasm between evangelism and disciple? That it is all one. Sarah... McCannelly shared with me earlier this week how a couple posted on social media that they were new to a neighborhood and they wanted to find a local church. They listed the things they really like about a church. A really good band because they like to sing. An entertaining youth group for their teens. And in-person gathering because they prefer to watch live teaching. She then said a stream of people started pitching their church programs at this couple. And in the midst of a sea of church advertisements, one pastor invited the family over to his house for dinner. Come on. Come follow me as I follow Christ. In fact, let's grab a meal and sink in together. Similarly to the data I, sh I shared from the Barner Group, we have more and more information coming out asking, what is, in the, what is the flaw in today's church? Why is it so messed up? Maybe it's less a flaw in the church and maybe we are simply getting the results of what has been asked of people. Agree to some statements, say a prayer, attend some programs, maybe give some money. All while Jesus apprentices people to himself around the table and on the way. How often in the Gospels it says, as they were on their way, as they were on their way, Jesus uses the walk of life to be a classroom. All of life. Follow me. The call is apprenticing to the person and way of Jesus. It's not about a particular location, but a life that we live everywhere and in community. So, I know Walker Harbor gets called traditional specifically because of the following practice, but I want to invite you, would you stand with me? And I want us to return to the ancient practice of setting our lives, our hearts, and our way in the Shema. That if we will say this together, but here's the thing, not just for memory's sake, but for igniting our daily way of living in the way of Jesus. This is why we do this. So, yes, we are going to be really traditional. I know that's what you guys always say, well, he's just so traditional. We've got to get over that. And we are. So what we're going to do is we're going to be really traditional, and we're going to start with the Hebrew 
You can repeat after me, then we'll say it in the English. Okay? Sound great? I love it. Here we go. We'll throw it up on screen. I think we have it. Great. Shema Yisrael. With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Amen. Now, I'd like to just take a few minutes and respond through song, that we would just set ourselves where we are, and we would respond in song. We would sing our hearts to God. That we would ask ourselves, are we willing, wanting, desiring to follow Jesus, his way, in this? That is my heart. Gracious God, I bless you for loving us. Each one here, you have created God. Each one here. Is created in your image. The essence of who they are is who you are. God, my prayer is that we would return to that, turn to that. And we would follow you, walk with you in community, be your church for a world that is desperate for good news. May our yes simply be the first step or the next step in following you with our whole lives. We're not perfect. We will not nail it every time. But we will follow. We will follow. We will follow. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.